So as I got ready to uh, come in this week, we're talking about the, the Exodus and was reading through it. One of the things that seemed to, to leap out at me was the, the whole idea of fear and, and, you know, how we handle the things in life that we're afraid of and that legitimately as well as illegitimately. But um, I, I thought there was a very famous quote about fear, right? Y'all, y'all, uh, we have, we have what? Nothing to fear. Yeah, now, who said that? Yeah, uh, Kurt's got it, I know, but I've gotten Winston Churchill, and I've gotten Dwight Eyes, and I've gotten several interesting, it was actually, it was FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, and that's not exactly the way the quote went. This is from his inauguration speech. He said, so first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. In every dark hour of our national life, life, a leadership of frankness and of vigor has met with that understanding and support of the people themselves, which is essential to victory. And I am convinced that you will again give that support to leadership in these critical days. And I love that, that statement of his confidence but, but in the face of that, you hear that, that wonderful definition, nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. I don't think I've ever heard a better definition of, of what fear really is. And then he counters that with that, that statement of confidence, that this is, in the past, we've always been able to meet it in this way, and I'm confident we'll be able to do it again, that wonderful statement into that. And I just, as we, as we come into this and we're talking about the Exodus this morning, we're thinking about it, I, I'm just, I want to invite you to think about where are those places in your life that, that you are in fear and anxiety? Where are you being paralyzed by that fear and anxiety? Uh, and invite God to step into that uh, with God's strength and with God's deliverance. Let's pray. Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So at the end of last week, uh, we had Moses out in the desert, and he's standing there with a burning bush, and, and uh, in spite of all of his excuses, God has said, okay, you're going to go do this, and, and I'm going to send you Aaron uh, to be your mouthpiece. And so today we pick up with Aaron's arrival. Uh, the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went, and he met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. The mountain of God being Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him and all the signs with which he had charged him. Now, Exodus doesn't tell us this, but, you know, Aaron, in this, he just, he just goes along with this. And I, I, I can't help but think that at that moment, Aaron was probably thinking something like, you've been in the sun way too long, Moses. Those dates were bad, weren't they? I mean, he's, uh, you know, he doesn't say it, but you know, I'm sure he had to wonder about you know, what Moses was seeing and hearing and whether that was actually God or whether that was the influence of some kind of psychoactive chemical in his system. But, but nonetheless, he, he goes along with him and they begin this, uh, this tremendous uh, journey, this tremendous venture that God has called them into together. Uh, the two of them. So I'm going to remind you, they go to speak to Pharaoh, who is Ramses. His name means Ra Moses, drawn from or or from uh, Ra, the sun god, the the chief of of all the Egyptian pantheon of gods. 
And they go to meet him in his city, Pi Ramses. The house of Ramses is a city he built for himself and for his capital. It was originally located in, in the uh, village, which is now Kantar, and then later was moved to Tanis. And he moved it when the, the Nile shifted uh, its course a little bit because of sedimentation. And so he literally, he had built the city, and when the river moved, he had it taken down stone by stone and moved to a new location. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is, is I want you to understand that we're, when we talk about Ramses, we're dealing with a person with tremendous resources, uh, tremendous power, uh, tremendous wealth. He's taking down a whole city and moving it because the river has moved. And, and don't, don't think small town. Think huge, complex, vast temples and, and you know, city, uh, uh, temples and temples and burial grounds and all this kind of stuff. He moves the whole thing to be where he wants it to be. And so before Ramses, this great figure, arguably at this time, the wealthiest and most powerful man on the face of the earth. Before him come Moses and Aaron. According to Acts, at this point, Moses is 80 years old. Uh, Acts has Moses' life in three 40-year segments. He's 40 years until the time when he kills the Egyptian. He's another 40 years until he hits this moment, and then he'll be 40 years in the wilderness, which means he would have been 120 when he died. The average age is 45 at the time of death at this time. So, <coughs> you know, he, he's, he's really old. He's really, really old. And, and those of us that have been around Scripture enough know that that 40 sometimes isn't meant to be taken literally. It just means a really long time. But nonetheless, you know, he, he is at this point quite elderly. And his brother Aaron is his older brother by three years. So you've got these two old guys, two old shepherds, you know, coming into the court of Ramses. I haven't quite figured out how they did that. You know, I mean, with all the trouble we have to go through to get on an airplane, these guys just walk into Ramsey's court. I mean, they didn't have to take off their belt or their shoes, go through the, I mean, you know, they just, they just walk in. Now, I don't know if it's because Moses had grown up in the court that they did it or whether in this day and age they just weren't as uh, conscious of such things as we are. Uh, but, but to me, it's just amazing that they're able even to get in there. Um, afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go so that they may celebrate a festival to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? And you need to hear it this way. Who is Yahweh that I should heed him and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh and I will not let Israel go. So, so Moses and Aaron, <laughs> these two 80-year-old guys, their shepherd cloak, their staff and all that, they're going into Pharaoh's court. You know, I mean, big grand thing, you know, big guards, people with swords and all that kind of stuff and everything. And they're going to stand before him and say, hey, listen, Yahweh says you've got to let our people go. And, Mo, and you know, Pharaoh had to be thinking, you know, what is wrong with these guys? Who do they think they are? I mean, first off, Pharaoh in this day, he, he's, he's semi-divine in understanding. In the, in the Egyptian understanding, he, he's come from the sun god. And, and upon his death, if he passes over into the afterlife, he will become a full god himself. So he's semi-divine himself. And he has that understanding. And he knows his power and he knows his wealth. And I'm sure he's just thinking, sitting here thinking, you know, well, who, who's Yahweh that I should heed him? You know, if Yahweh wants to talk to me, have him call him, call me. I mean, you know, talk to me myself. Don't send me these two old guys. Let's talk God to God. And so he says, no way. 
I'm going to do this. Now, now, the interesting thing is you look at this picture and you think, why would you, I mean, here you've got the most powerful man in the world and you've got these two powerless old shepherds there. Why, why would God send them up against Pharaoh? Except that it's really not Pharaoh against Moses and Aaron, is it? It's Pharaoh against Yahweh. Moses and Aaron are just the mouthpieces. It's actually Pharaoh versus Yahweh that's going to happen. And what's going to unfold in the book of Exodus is this kind of process by which uh, Yahweh is trying to show Pharaoh and the people of Egypt who he is and what his power is. And it happens through this series of plagues that are documented, the ten plagues that happen. Um, you know, it's interesting as we read through all these and over the years as I've read through them, the different kinds of ways people try to explain this. Um, those of you who grew up on the coast, you all know what a red tide is. Uh, it's a surge of a certain type of uh, bacteria that grows. Um, when it comes in and it, and it takes off and explodes, you know, the water turns kind of a blood red. Uh, the smell, the fumes off of it are horrible. If you get near it, it actually makes your eyes burn and your sinuses burn. And, and, and you know, the fish and everything in it die. It's just, it's really horrible. And so some people have looked at this first part of this and said, well, that sounds like a red tide. You know, the water turns to blood and everything dies. The frogs leave because if they stay in the water, they're going to die. Uh, the lice and the flies follow on all the, the dying animals that are along the banks of the river. The cattle get sick because they're drinking the water and they're in the midst of this. People get boils because they're bathing in the water and so forth. So, you know, you, they, they kind of spin this out. And then folks look at the last part of this, you know, the fire and the hail and the darkness and all that. And, and they point to the explosion of uh, the volcano of Thera in the Mediterranean and say, well, that could have caused all this. And, and, all, and it's all real interesting to read. And I think, well, you know, that's really great, but, but so what? I mean, why is that important? The point of the story isn't how it happened. The writer of Exodus doesn't care what the mechanics of the process are. What the writer cares about is why it happened. Because God can act through natural or supernatural means, but it's still God acting. And so God acts through this kind of increasing, if you will, kind of process of, of these plagues where he, he's trying to show that he is really God. Now, we don't always get all of that, and uh, some of the Egyptian gods, some of the, their theology has been lost in time, but we know a few of them. Uh, we know that Hobby were the twin gods. They're actually pictured as twins of the Nile, and they represent the Nile River and the life that it brings. And so the first plague, when the river turns to blood and everything dies, is obviously an overthrow of that. Uh, Hecate is the goddess of fertility that's pictured as a frog. And so when the frogs leave the river and, and scramble out and die in the desert, uh, that's again a shine of God's uh, strength. Uh, Hathor is the goddess of joy and motherhood and, and is often pictured as a cow. And again, the cattle get sick and die. It's God's superiority. Uh, Ra, the sun god, the god above over all others. Well, we, you know, the, the plague of darkness when the sun is covered over uh, shows God's power over that. So you have this kind of increasing process where God is, is showing God's power until you come to this last horrific event, which really is the heart of the Passover, which is the death of the firstborn. Now, in this day and age and for thousands of years to come, I mean, it will still be going on in Jesus' day, uh, there is a practice around the Mediterranean of the sacrifice of firstborn children. That if you really wanted to make an impression on your God, you sacrificed your firstborn child to that God. And that guaranteed prosperity for your family, supposedly. And so this, this last plague, if you will, is, is, is the angel of death moving through the land of Egypt and taking all those firstborn children 
not, not as a way of guaranteeing prosperity, but as a way of showing the futility of their worship. And God himself will guarantee while they're in the wilderness, will give instructions to the people of Israel that they are never to sacrifice their children. But it's a horrific kind of event. And, and as you move through these plagues and you look at this, what you're, what you're seeing is this, this kind of ongoing event where, where God is trying to convince Pharaoh and the people of Egypt of who he is and of his power. And Pharaoh's resistant. Uh, the language is, for the first part of it, says, you know, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Later on, the language becomes more God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And a lot of us have wrestled with that over the, over the years, trying to understand exactly why the language is used that way. Uh, Adam talks about one of the interesting uh, pieces in his book that the word hard could also be heavy. And in this day and age, when the Pharaoh would die <clears throat> and be mummified, uh, the Egyptian uh, theology was that, that before they would pass over into the afterlife, their heart would be weighed. Uh, if their heart was heavy, which actually is the same word as hard in the original language, if their heart was heavy, that means it was filled with injustice. And so the heart would be consumed and they would, they would not pass into the afterlife. If their heart was light, because there was no injustice in it, then it would be restored and they would pass over into the next life. So that, that part of the, the, in, the meaning of that language may be just to say, you know, the more unjust, the more resistant Pharaoh was, the more Pharaoh guaranteed his own destruction. But I think there's also a piece of this story that, that has Pharaoh refusing to believe because, you know what, that's what we do. We tend to see what we want to see. We tend to believe what we want to believe. And please don't confuse us with the facts. And, and once we have a certain idea in our mind, the more you argue with us, the more we tend to dig our heels in. We're not open to what's going on. And so, so Pharaoh believes in his old pantheon of gods and in his people in his court and so forth. And, and, and while God is doing all these great works, Yahweh is doing all these amazing things, uh, Pharaoh is refusing to see. And it finally comes to this one crushing event where, where the grief and the sorrow are so overwhelming that for a moment, Pharaoh can't resist it. Now, to this day, if you're in a Seder meal, when the, the Jewish people uh, work through the, the ritual of that Seder meal and talk about the Passover, uh, the event of this night is repeated both, both as a sign of joy that we've been released and we've been given freedom, but also with a great amount of grief and sorrow because of what it cost for that to happen. And that's still held on to, and it's still understood. And, and Jesus, when Jesus would would later kind of reinterpret the Passover meal uh, to refer to his own crucifixion, would remind them again uh, of the price involved in that. So you come into Luke's gospel. Well, that's, no, that's the whole story. You come into Luke's gospel and you read where Jesus is saying... Now, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance. Uh, this cup that's poured out for you is the cup of the new covenant in, in my blood. And, and if you want to go even earlier than that, uh, you go to Paul in 1 Corinthians. So the, the earliest uh, written piece we have that refers to this, where Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you. But the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body that's for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. There's this, this understanding that, that, you know, in the same way that, that it took this horrific event for the Israelites to have freedom, it takes the horrific event of the crucifixion for us to have that. So Exodus 10 tells us the story of that night, and, and God reminds us not to forget this. Uh, take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood, the lamb's blood that's in the basin. Touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood in the basin. The lintel is the, the piece of wood over the door. None of you shall go outside the door of your house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike down the Egyptians. When he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over that door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you down. You shall observe this rite as a perpetual ordinance for you and your children. When you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this observance. And when your children ask you, what do you mean by this observance? You shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord for he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed down and worshiped. The Israelites went and did just as the Lord had commanded. Moses and Aaron. And at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all of his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud cry in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron in the night and said, Rise up, go away from my people, both you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord, as you said. <clears throat> There's this horrific event. And as, as resistant as Pharaoh has been, when, when the whole land is grieving, when every house is crying out, there's a, moment, there's a moment there where he relents. Take your people and get out before something else awful occurs to us. The Jewish people never forgot that event. They celebrate that night to this night. When they have Passover, it's still part of their, their memory and their culture. We remember it every time we receive Holy Communion. If you come here on Monday, Thursday, we'll remember it that night in this worship. That there was this horrific event, sacrifice required for the freedom of the Israelites. And there is a horrific sacrifice required for us. In 1 Corinthians, Paul would even make that reference to the Paschal Lamb, Christ, who's been sacrificed, who, who has to be offered up for us. So that we, we never forget that, that our freedom has a tremendous side of grief and sorrow to it, as well as joy and celebration. That there's not really any way to have Easter unless you've had crucifixion and death. And those of you that have been through those, those kind of crucial, kind of agonizing turning points in your life, you know there's a reality in that, even in the day-to-day -day living that we're about. That sometimes there can be no new beginnings in our lives until we have had parts of our lives that have died. And it can be agonizing to go through. But it's what gives us the hope for new life. So Pharaoh relents and he he allows the people to go and to leave. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, though that was nearer, 
For God thought, if the people face war, they may change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people by the roundabout way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of the land of Egypt prepared for battle. Now, <clears throat> a couple of things with this that it, it's often called the Red Sea. Actually, in the original language, it's the Reed Sea. This is a King James translation issue that's become part of the, the ongoing life of the scriptures. Uh, but it probably is more accurately translated the Reed Sea. And when God brings them out, he doesn't take them through the land of the Philistines. Now, they're over here in this area around Pi Ramses. Uh, and, of course, the, the straight shot across to Canaan would be like right across here, except all of this area of the coast is under control of the Philistines, and they are well-armed, well-organized. They are fierce warriors, uh, and they'll, they'll still be that for a long time to come. And God knows that if he brings the people of Israel who have been in servitude for generations now, you know, they're this ragtag collection of people, and it brings them out in the army, the Philistines are just going to slaughter the first of them, and the rest of them are going to turn around, and they're going to run back to Egypt for protection. So God knows he has to bring them a different way. So he brings them down through the wilderness of the Sinai, down through here. Then later they'll come up here to Edom and Moab and then cross over. But as they're going in here, uh, it gives them a chance not only to not face the Philistines, but it gives God a chance to work on them. Because remember, this is a group of people who have been in servitude for generations. They don't know how to govern themselves. They don't know how to function as a community. They have no idea how to do any of this. And, and, and God has got to have some time to shape them and to work on them. It's almost like letting children grow up. I mean, there just has to be a maturing of them as a people that has to occur. And so part of this, I think, is not simply to avoid the Philistines, but also to provide time for them to grow up as God's people. Uh, the Reed Sea is really a region in this part, this arm of the Gulf of Suez across here. Um, we don't know exactly where that crossing might have taken place. And, and the sea itself expands and shrinks depending upon rain and tides and so forth. So we're not really sure exactly where that occurred. Uh, it ranges anywhere from uh, 10 to 40 feet in depth. Uh, it's fairly substantial, though. It's not, don't, don't think of it like, you know, your stock tank or something like that. I mean, this is a large body of water. And, and so they come across here, and they come across to cross and move into the Sinai Desert. And here is the next place that there's going to be a big challenge, because by the time they get to the sea, Pharaoh has calmed down and uh, actually has become quite angry and decides, you know, I'm not going to just let them walk out of here. And so he gathers up his army and he goes after them and catches up with them at the edge of the sea. As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back and there were the Egyptians advancing on them. Remember, they're just this ragtag group of people. And here comes the might of the Egyptian army behind them. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, because God has spoken to them through Moses, they speak back to God through Moses. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Is, not, is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And, you know, this is, boy, classic second guessing, isn't it? I mean, you know, aren't there enough graves back home? You know, we could have just stayed back then and been comfortable and then died of old age. But no, no, Moses, you had to bring us out here and now we're all going to get slaughtered. Now, you know, they've seen all these amazing things that have happened in the land of Egypt. They, they've witnessed all of that. They've seen everything the Egyptians have. And yet they come to this point and they've got the sea on one side of them and the army coming from the other and they sink right back into fear. 
And there's something about us, <laughs> there's something about us that tends to do that. No matter, no matter what God has done for us in our lives, no matter what we've seen happen in our lives, we come up against an obstacle and, and that's what we do. Oh, we're just going to die. I mean, we just sink into that negativity and that fear and that anxiety. And, and our culture has just, has just kind of stirred that up and cultivated it here. Have you noticed you listen to it? We no longer have political discourse about ideas. Political discourse like this sounds, well, if you do what they say, you're all going to die. You know, if you change the tax bracket, we're all going to die. You know, I mean, if you change this, we're all going to die. Those people, the other side, those people don't like you. They don't care about you. They just want to do something bad for you. Be afraid. Be very afraid. And so instead of having any kind of discussion, we just dwell in our fear and our anxiety and our fear-mongering. And so the people of Israel, having seen all the good things that God has done, do the same thing. Because the technology may have changed, but people now and people then are not any different. And in the midst of that place of fear, Moses says, do not be afraid. Stand firm. See the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to keep still. Remember, it's not a contest between Moses and Pharaoh. It's a contest between Pharaoh and Yahweh. And all you need to do is stand firm, be confident, be still, and wait. That's really hard for us to do, isn't it? When things are going crazy in life, we don't like that. Don't tell me, I, I, don't just sit there, do something. You know what I mean, right? One of those great German little phrases that I picked up when I was out in the hill country is, uh, you know, pray like no amount of work would help, but work like no amount of prayer will help. Well, be strong, don't be afraid. God will deliver you. Just, just give God room to work. And the rabbinic tradition holds that, that as Moses was standing there after he said that, he turned to the sea and God said, you know, hold the staff out over the sea and he held it out and God said, cross. And Moses started walking into the water. And it wasn't until the water reached his nose that the sea began to divide. So that Moses himself was tested in his faith, but also showed the people of Israel what it meant to be courageous in the Lord. And are we ever willing to do that? Or do we come to those places in our life where we're on the sea and we say, I'm out. I'm not in this God anymore. I'm going to take care of this myself. I'm going to deal with this. So they go across the sea, and, and as the army enters the sea behind them, the wheels of the chariots bog down in the mud of the seabed, and, and they all kind of come to a grinding halt. And then once the Israelites have cleared it, God closes the ocean over them. And there's a tremendous celebration that takes place. Moses and the Israelites sang the song, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Remember, God, Yahweh, has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider, he's thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my might. He's become my salvation. 
This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord, Yahweh, is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he cast into the sea. His picked officers were sunk in the sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Now, in spite of this great song of victory, you need to know this. You're going to hear, I think next week, that they continue to doubt and, and, and mumble and grumble. So it's, you know, I mean, they're, they're celebrating now, but they haven't quite got all the way there yet. And then the prophet Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and with dancing. And Miriam sang to them this song, which is the oldest piece of scripture we have found physical evidence for. Sing to the Lord, for he's triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider, he's thrown into the sea. And there's this beautiful moment of victory that takes place when they realize that God has rescued them. And, and there's a moment there where they're very firm in their belief. But they will continue to wrestle with that. So I, I, I just wonder this morning, you know, as you think about your life and where it is you feel like you've got the sea on one side and the army on the other side. Where does you feel like God is calling you to stand in front of Pharaoh and speak to him? Uh, where, where God's got his hand upon you? Where are those places that you're terrified and afraid? And, and can you stand firm and not be afraid and trust in the Lord who is our deliverer? Let's pray. Mighty Father, you, you do great works in the midst of this. We see your hand at work. And yet in those moments when we find ourselves stuck between the sea and the army, uh, we sink into our fear and we sink into our negativity and our mistrust. We begin to try to solve all the problems ourselves. We try to fix everything ourselves instead of relying on you. So, so remind us that the battle is, is not between us and the world. The battle is between you and the powers of the world. And give us courage to stand and watch and trust as you deliver us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.